Please open your Bible to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Uh, this morning we continue our series in the book of Matthew. And we're almost, almost done. We are, we are in the final verses of uh, the book of Matthew. And what a journey it's been. Now last night I, uh, had, had, I was out, I'd gotten home, and Caitlin, my daughter, was reading a book with Christine, and the book was, What's the Difference? Animals. And so they, were, they had the book open, and, and Christine would cover up the, uh, the labels for what the animals were, and they were, they, every page had pictures of similar animals, so it'd be like leopard and jaguar, and Caitlin was testing herself for her knowledge on, like, can she tell the difference? Goose and duck, uh, sea lion and seal, things like that, and she did pretty fine. She did a great job knowing the difference, but this book is all about contrasts. I mean, it's all about putting two things next to each other and seeing, all right, what's the difference? Now, in a similar way, that's what Matthew is going to do in the text we're going to look at today. Now, we're going to transition, as we heard from John last week, transition from the Garden of Gethsemane to this new scene. Matthew directs our attention to another location. And we see this in verse 57. Matthew writes this, chapter 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus, they had just arrested him in the garden, they led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now these are the same men, and this is the same place that we came across at the beginning of Matthew 26. And in verses 3 and 4, we read that the the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus and kill him. So they've arrested him now. Now they bring him to this same place. And the Jewish leaders, they'd, they'd set out with a specific person, purpose, arrest and kill Jesus. So they've arrested him. Now the next step is to condemn him to death. They needed a charge that would bring a conviction in the eyes of Rome, since the Romans were the ones who would have to carry out that capital punishment. They would be the ones that would actually kill Jesus. And so that is what they're here to do. They have their conclusion already determined. So the purpose of this trial taking place at night isn't to bring anything to light, it's to provide the basis for condemning Jesus to death. But the Jewish leaders and Jesus, they're not alone. And Matthew wants us to know someone else was there as well. And so he writes this in verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Matthew has transitioned us to this new location. And we've got Jesus with the religious leaders, and we have Peter. Now remember Peter's resolve just a few verses before. In verse 33 of chapter 26, we read that Peter had answered Jesus that though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He doubles down on his commitment when Jesus tells him that you're going to deny me three times. In verse 35, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And here... Just a few hours later, after all the other disciples have fled from Jesus in the garden, Peter shows his commitment to Jesus and follows into the courtyard. His courageous resolve is that he will not abandon Jesus. So the scene is set. Two men are in the palace of the high priest. One brought through arrest. The other has entered willingly. The first comes in seeming weakness the other with apparent 
resolve. They will both face questions this night. And in a sense, they're both going to be put on trial. Two men, two trials, two responses to questions and accusations. We're going to look at them both. What's the difference? Let's look at these two pictures. Picture one, Jesus on trial. Matthew paints the sordid picture of this trial immediately. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Matthew tells us right at the outset that the council isn't looking for truth. They simply want to put Jesus to death, and they need testimony in order to do that. Now, you may be wondering, wouldn't it be more expedient? Wouldn't it make more sense if they just put him to death? Like, why go through this charade? Well, it's so important to them because they were fiercely committed to what they saw as their own power. They had their position of authority, of influence, of power, and they didn't want to do anything that made them seem illegitimate. And so they put on this charade as if to go through the motions of a, a, a legitimate trial, even though everything they're doing is illegitimate. They still wanted to show to any onlooker that they were actually about the things they said they were about. And primary among their commitments was a commitment to the Torah, to the law of God, the first five books of our Bible. And in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, there are very specific instructions given concerning witnesses. So Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. That's in the Bible. A single single witness is not enough. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now this is a principle of justice that's still carried out today in our culture for the most part. And it must be more than one person that can bear witness and give testimony when a charge is brought. It can't just be he says, she says. It's It's got to be two or three people that bring a charge. And this is where the Jewish leaders run into a problem. They're happy with anybody to say anything, but the problem is they can't find anybody who agrees on their testimony. So verse 60 says, as they were seeking false testimony, they found none, though many witnesses, many false witnesses came forward. Many people come forward. Many false witnesses come forward. So they're already liars, but they can't lie together. None of them come forward with the same testimony. Their stories don't agree, and so they couldn't be used as witnesses. Now, what I find striking about all of this is that Deuteronomy 19 doesn't stop at only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. This is what it says next in Deuteronomy 19. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, this trial that Jesus is facing is full of malicious witnesses. They all intend to do Jesus harm. Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now these men leading this sham of a trial, knew these words. They were committed to these words. And God, in his unsurpassed wisdom, he institutes laws to govern his people from 
false charges and from false witnesses. And to protect them, they are to appear before the Lord as they stand before judges, as they stand before priests and religious leaders. And these men have the responsibility to protect the people of God from this evil injustice. Now, there's irony all over this text. But here, the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, appears before these religious leaders. And here, the religious leaders are seeking to purge the righteous from their midst. After being unable to find any witnesses that agree, Matthew tells, at the end, tells us at the end of verse 60 that at last, two came forward. Look at their testimony in verse 61. They came forward and said to the religious leaders, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The accusation is that Jesus has said that he would destroy the temple. And while this bears some similarity to what Jesus has said, it's not exactly what he said. John records Jesus' words as he, as he goes in and cleanses the temple, and this is in John 2, 19. And after cleansing the temple, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that they, not Jesus, will destroy the temple, and that he, in three days, will raise it up. And John inserts a little commentary there and says that Jesus was not talking about the temple, but he was talking about his body. He is going to be killed and raised. He is the temple, this meeting place between God and man. But the testimony of these witnesses distorts what Jesus has said about the temple. But it doesn't really matter in the end. These Jewish leaders and their false witnesses, they're not interested in the truth. They are interested in condemnation, in bringing judgment. And so in verse 62, we read this. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Caiaphas, he questions Jesus, demanding a response. And we read in verse 63, But Jesus remained silent. So when... Given the opportunity, does Jesus defend himself? He's got all these, these false witnesses coming against him. Now two agree, this false testimony. Does Jesus set the record straight? Does he put these fools in their place? If, if I didn't know what happened in this text, that's what I would have been waiting for, right? That's what we've seen throughout Matthew. But Jesus remains silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But the high priest, even knowing those words of Isaiah from 700 years before, the high priest would have none of the silence. Jesus doesn't respond to the false testimony. He doesn't respond to the question of the high priest. So Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and demands an answer. In the face of Jesus' silence, look at verse 63. Jesus has remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He puts him under oath. You must tell us. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Caiaphas knows exactly what he is demanding of Jesus. 
If Jesus says that he is the Christ, the Messiah, then Rome will see him as a threat, a threat to their sovereignty, and the Romans will want him killed. He's an insurrectionist. If he says that he is the Son of God, then he is a threat to the Jews, and they will have him condemned. But if he denies either, then his ministry is shown to be a sham. But Jesus confounds the wisdom of men and responds brilliantly. He doesn't deny what the high priest states. He actually agrees with him to an extent. Look at Jesus' stunning reply in, in verse 64. Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now this is the same reply he gave to Judas just a, a few verses earlier when Judas asked if he was going to be the one to betray Jesus. He's essentially saying, yes, but you really don't know what you're saying. You see, as Matthew shows again and again, these religious leaders, they don't understand who Jesus is. Jesus is right before them, fulfilling prophecy right before them, prophecy that they know, but they don't know who he is. They think they know God, but they have no idea who God is. So Jesus, instead of backing down or leaving things there, he raises the stakes. He says, yes, but I'm not the Christ that you imagine." Look what he says in verse 64. You have said so, but I tell you. Familiar phrase in Matthew, but I tell you. Truly I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In this brief statement, Jesus confesses and testifies about himself, truth about himself. Here Jesus is, is put on the witness stand amidst false accusations. And he stands there up to this point silent. And to all the onlookers, after he's been arrested in the garden and taken away, he probably seems weak and foolish, soon to be condemned. And amid this dark and tragic scene, Jesus boldly responds with this stunning statement of his own power and authority and glory. He directs the entire, the entire court's attention to the place that all of history is heading. It's one we, we considered earlier today in our time of singing. When Abe read the scripture from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Jesus stands and, and tells the court that he is not just the Christ, the Son of God, but he, that he is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man means that he is, he is the last Adam. This Son of Man is the one who is coming to establish God's kingdom forever. Paul talks about this in, in Romans 5 when he talks about how, how death and sin were brought to all people through one man, through Adam. But so too grace and life through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has used this phrase to describe himself. In Matthew, it's, it's really Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself as the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is the one who had nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man comes to suffer but will rise from the dead. And Matthew has been building towards this climax where you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now in Jesus' time, those in power, they were the ones who were seated. A king would sit on his throne and he would rule and judge as people came to him. His advisors would stand around him. He would be seated. 
Those who he judged would come and stand before him. He would be seated. To be seated is to be in this place of power, of authority. It is to be the judge. And as Jesus stands before the high priest who is seated, and the high priest is seated there as the judge of Jesus, Caiaphas thinks that he and his minions, that they're seated in the place of power. That they are working in God's place. That they are the ones who have the seat of honor. That this is all an expression of God's righteous judgment upon Jesus. That's what they're thinking. But they have it all wrong. Jesus says that he is the one that they will one day see seated at the right hand of power. He is the one that Caiaphas and all people have to stand before. Because the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven. He is the living one who has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He is the righteous judge who will judge all people. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is incredible testimony. In response to this, this astounding declaration of power by Jesus, the high priest, he thinks he's got it made. He has what he's been looking for. This is, this is blasphemous. Their trial of Jesus ends with, with their condemnation of him. It ends with their denial, their willful denial of truth. It ends with their horrendous and despicable mockery. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes. It's a sign of just great grief. And said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This so-called legal procession results in the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. They condemn the innocent one. The one that they have been waiting for. The Messiah, their deliverer, the anointed one, their only hope for salvation. They spit on and strike they slap and mock. But this shocking response to Jesus is no shock to Jesus at all. This is the path that he knew he must walk. This is the pain that he knew he would face. And I think that in this moment, Jesus, the suffering servant, would have been meditating on Isaiah 50, verses 5-9. through nine. Listen to what Isaiah prophesies about the Lord's servant. Again, this is 700 years before this trial. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? 
Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. How can Jesus have such confidence in the face of such injustice? That's because he knows that God is in control. And God is not just in control of his present circumstances, but God is in control of all of history. And Jesus knows where history is headed, that all of his accusers will will wear out like a garment. The evil are like chaff that the wind drives away. He is the Son of Man, the one who will come on the clouds of heaven, the one who will be highly exalted and given the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where all of time is headed. So even as as Caiaphas and the other religious leaders, they sit there and condemn Jesus, Jesus knows that he is the righteous one. He is the judge of the living and the dead, and they will stand before him and be judged. So when Jesus is put on trial in the court of the high priest, he stands with courage. He stands with conviction. He is faithful to the will of his Father. He does not fail in the face of opposition, of injustice, of persecution, even in the face of death. Brothers and sisters, behold the Christ who suffered in your place. But our narrative does not end there. There's another character, another trial. Let's look at this second scene together. Picture two, Peter on trial. Now we saw Peter back in verse 58 following at a distance. And if you don't know what's to come, it seems like, all right, I mean, all the disciples have fled and he's the one that's following. He seems kind of courageous. He is committed to never abandoning Jesus, resolved to never follow, fall away. So that's, that's what he's doing there, going into enemy territory. After the condemnation of Jesus, Matthew brings Peter back on the scene. Look at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now, the the Greek there, it communicates not so much a confrontation as something that just would be, oh, kind of surprising. Like, oh, aren't, yeah, aren't, isn't that you? No, is that you? So while Jesus is inside facing the question and accusations of those in power, Peter is outside and faces the, the question of a servant girl, probably 12 or 14 years old. And she associates him with Jesus. Yeah, you were with him, right? And Peter when given the opportunity to identify himself with Jesus, when given the opportunity to show his resolve to never abandon Jesus, he denies the association. Look at verse 70. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 72, And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now remember that this is Peter that we're talking about. Again, I mean, try and, try and separate yourself from, you know what, what's coming. But think about Peter and what we know of Peter. Courage and boldness and faith are his points of strength. 
Of all the disciples who were on the boat when Jesus was walking on water, Peter's the only one that said, you know what, I'm going to get out and walk on water too. He had a lot of faith. He's the first of the disciples to confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one who just took up as, as all, these, uh, all these guys come into the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the one that stands up to him and chops off somebody's ear. It's not funny. <laughs> And here Peter is, in the face of questions from a servant girl. Right? I mean, after he just wielded the sword. A servant girl comes to him, and he's cowering in fear, ducking from any opportunity to be connected to Jesus. He does it twice. But the questioning continues to come. Look at verse 73. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Jesus and Peter were both from Galilee. Then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And here Matthew writes, And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me. Three times. Now the crowing of the rooster serves as an immediate reminder to Peter of his failure, of his faithlessness. And so, Matthew concludes verse 75, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's response to his failure is deep grief. Now we're going to come back to that next week because we're going to see how Judas responds to his failure and it's decidedly different. But Peter's grief arises from despair that he abandoned the Lord. How could he leave the God he confessed to love, the one he had given up all to follow? Yet in the face of a few questions, in the midst of a little bit of opposition, Peter denies everything he holds dear. At the very moments when Jesus is standing up to those who questioned him and not denying anything. That's what's happening right at these moments. Peter is outside backing down from those who questioned him and denying everything. While Jesus is the one who is offering his life for his people, Peter is the one who is denying any association with Jesus. Two trials, two responses to questions and accusations. Two men the first in a context of weakness shows incredible strength and faith. While the second in a context of strength shows devastating weakness and failing faith. Matthew concludes this, this scene and says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate, the governor. What a night in history this was. Now how do we respond to this, these, these two scenes, these two trials? Now I think we need to recognize that all of humanity is represented in these two trials. All of humanity. That's a big statement, and I mean to make that big statement. All people, everyone in this room, is included in all of human history, just in case there was any confusion. All people are either the religious leaders putting God on trial, or they are Peter's being put on trial. You can only be in one of those two camps. Now in the first instance, 
are all of those who put themselves in the place of judging God. And outside of Christ, outside of the Spirit's work in our hearts, this is every one of us. Outside of the work of salvation, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And we are those who deny the reality of God, who exchange the truth about God for a lie. And in our sin, in our self-centeredness, we all want a God who serves us, who validates us, whose entire reason for being is to make sure that we get what we want. And, and that actually sums up a lot of what masquerades as Christianity in our culture today. Now think about it for these religious leaders. What bothered these religious leaders so much? It was that Jesus came and he upset the status quo. He came and he condemned them. He told them that their, their, their piety and their power and their prestige was all fake. And he told them that he came to rebuild it. They hated this. They didn't want a God who would break things down and build them new. They wanted a God who gave them power, who validated their existence, who told them that they were as great as they thought they were. But this is a huge problem for these leaders and a huge problem for the rest of humanity. Because to have a God who thinks that you're as great as you think you are is to have no God at all. One commentator writes, the God who destroys his own temple is the only God there is. This is the God of Israel, not a God who exists to prop up our world, to keep things steady as she goes. The God of Israel is a disruptive God who stirs things up, who forms world and tears them apart, who builds temples and destroys them when they get corrupt. That's the only God there is, the one true God. If we desire to have God as Savior, then we must and can only have God as judge as well. This is a hard truth, but it's true. He is the one who is holy and righteous and just. And He is the one who condemns sin. He gives the standard of righteousness that we are all measured by. We can't come up with that. We can't look to the world around us to come up with that. He is the one. We might pretend to be judges of God. We might pretend to be those who are, who are seeking out truth and, and searching for answers. But it's a lie. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. It's James 4.13. Who are we to judge God? We have no standing before Him. The one who is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. All things have been put under His feet and He is head over all things. This is God. So brothers and sisters, if, if this is you, if this is where you're at, repent of your pride. Repent of your self-seeking. Repent of, of your desire to have a God that you think you can control. And come to the only one who can truly satisfy your restless soul. Now the second group of people that we see in this text is those who have placed their trust in Christ. Those who have received the gift of salvation. And it's a sobering truth, but it's a true truth. We are all Peters. Though we have confessed with our mouths that we will never fall away, and we'll never deny Jesus in our sin and our ongoing battle with our flesh and the devil and our love for the world. We all deny him. We disassociate ourselves with him. We do this day by day. 
And this text shows us the tremendous, tremendous limits of our own resolve apart from the Spirit's work, outside of dependence upon God in prayer. If we rely on ourselves, we will all always fail. I mean, think about those most resolved moments in your life. Like, I'm going to do it this time. And you try to do it in your own strength. And what happens? You fail. Every time. We will fail, but Jesus never fails. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. So Jesus never gives in to fear. He never stumbles. He never rejects the will of God. Indeed, in His love, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Even to the point of death, Jesus chooses His Father's will. And in His death, He conquers death once and for all. And through His resurrection, we receive the gift of life. So brothers and sisters, respond to your failure by running to Jesus. Repent of your sin and run to Jesus. Respond to your challenges by trusting in Jesus. Respond to your sorrows and your grief and your disappointments by looking to the one who suffered for you, who faced injustice on your behalf, who was abandoned, who faced the deepest sorrow imaginable, all for the glory of God and for our good. He didn't go to the cross because everything spiraled out of control. He didn't walk this road to Calvary because you know, it was the last best option because nothing else worked out. This was the Father's plan, that He might redeem a people for Himself. And He has done it. And so when we face burdens and sorrow and grief, hear these words from a hymn written around 1900. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. Brothers and sisters, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for the grace, the love, the mercy that we receive in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we live in the good of what You have accomplished for us through Your death and resurrection. We are a people who, outside of the Spirit's work, think we are something. Think we can do something about our failures, the challenges that we face. But our only hope is You. Thank You that You are a God who, who destroys our pride and gives us strength in our weakness, peace in our sorrow, comfort in our grief, and grace in, in spite of all our sin. Lord, we look to You and we long to live for You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.